So in 1840s, a black man by the name of Thomas Smallwood ignited a movement that provided hope of a new life for black slaves in Northern Virginia and Maryland. Smallwood, who actually paid off the debt for his own freedom, he was living in Washington, D.C., and was widely known as the shoemaker in town. He kept a very quiet profile repairing people's shoes, yet his ears were wide open, and he soaked up the conversation, especially of slave owners. He began to note their patterns and took note of their forward thinking, their plans, when it came to their own slaves. With the help of another man named Charles Torrey, Smallwood began a smuggling operation that would carry slaves up to Pennsylvania, Canada, and folks would then have their freedom. So Smallwood went to work, and he built a quiet network of trusted helpers who would help slaves randomly escape at night. With the use of horses and covered wagons, these helpers would smuggle slaves north and then east towards the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, These slaves would be placed in normal-looking boats that would go sailing during the day up the Chesapeake Bay to the Susquehanna River. At the mouth of the Susquehanna River, they would head northwest into northern Maryland and they would come to a town called Port Deposit. Back on land, there were friends of Smallwood who would help shuttle these men and women and children, these escapees, through the woods up to the state line of Pennsylvania. Well, as Smallwood's escape operation grew increasingly successful, he would hear the shock and the anger of slave owners in D.C., These unsuspecting men would wake up in the morning expecting the smell of bacon and eggs or expecting their wagon and horses to be brought around to the front by their slaves, but the house was eerily quiet. The men and women whom they had owned as slaves, they had escaped during the night and they were gone. And back in the 1840s, to chase them on horse or foot was pretty much pointless because Smallwood and the escaping slaves already had a seven-hour lead up to the Mason-Dixon line. As more and more slaves in D.C. took Smallwood's underground railroad and headed north, the slave owners began reacting. The slave owners, fearful that their other slaves would run, and hence they would lose the money that they had purchased these slaves with, the slave owners began selling their remaining slaves to a slave trader named Hope Slatter before the slaves could run away. Slatter was a terrible man based out of Baltimore who was ready and willing to buy up local slaves, shackle them for a few weeks, and then ship them over a 1,000 miles down to New Orleans where cotton farmers were always in the market to purchase slaves. Now in the Deep South, these men, women, and children had virtually no chance of running away and surviving a trip all the way up north. They were, at that point, forever enslaved. However, for the black men, women, and children who made it to Pennsylvania and Canada, life was still challenging, 
there, were the, there was the danger of slave catchers who would roam and try to bring slaves back to the south, but their freedom was sweet and their new lives were much better off. And all the stories of slaves who found freedom, I don't know of any man or woman who ever returned to his master and said, I want to return to my former life. Put me back in chains again. I want to be a slave. Now, it's been almost two months since we've been in the book of Galatians. To refresh your memory, Paul took his first missionary journey out of Antioch of Syria, headed west in the Mediterranean, stopped in an island, headed north after that, and was planting churches in this area called Galatia. His gospel message was that Jesus had died on the cross, he was resurrected from the dead, defeated death for the forgiveness of our sins. He took the punishment that we deserved for our sins and he offered his life of perfect obedience as a gift to anyone who will receive him as Lord and Savior of their lives. You say, well, what does one have to do? All one has to do is believe. Believe in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. Paul was planting churches, and people were receiving Christ as Savior, and he was moving up through this region in Galatia, and then he left and came back to Antioch. After Paul left, it's like Satan to corrupt good things. Religious leaders, watch out for religious leaders, by the way. I know I'm one of them, but watch out for religious leaders. They crept in and began sharing a different gospel in these churches up here. Their version of the gospel included all kinds of extra religious stuff. They taught that, hey, Jesus is good. He really came. He died on the cross. But Jesus is not enough. What you need is more religious steps, more religious requirements Things that many of the Jews who had converted to Christianity, those religious steps of the past, they were familiar with. Things like, you need to practice circumcision. Or, you need to eat these certain kinds of food. Or, you need to observe certain Old Testament feasts and days in order to be forgiven by God. It was a message of, trust Jesus and do these other things. And I've reminded you that your first response to the context of Galatians might be something like this. Well, that's good for them way back when, but I don't know how that really relates to us today. It relates to us in a massive and weighty way because the people whom you have rubbed shoulders with, the people whom God has put in your life, and maybe even some of you here this morning when asked if you have the assurance of eternal life, your or their response is something like this. I hope so. And your hope is, I believe Jesus came and died. But it seems as though I need to do other things in order to earn God's favor so that I might have salvation. That thinking I hope so, I need to be doing, 
is the same kind of thinking 2,000 years ago that these teachers were telling the people up in Galatia. This is incredibly relevant for us as Christians, both in our assurance of our Savior as being sufficient for salvation, and as Christians as we relate to people around us who are saying, I hope so. Word gets back to Paul about these religious leaders and their message, that they were adding deadly poison to Paul's gospel of Christ alone. It's Christ alone. That's what Galatians is about. And so then Paul writes this letter defending Christ alone. His purpose is to address the issue and help believers who are slipping backwards, not slip backwards, not return to where they've come from, but move forward in the gospel in their life of freedom in Christ. So now we're in chapter 4. And the big idea of today's sermon is this. Here's your big idea if you're taking notes. Christian, you are a son of God. Christian, you are a son of God. Don't go back to your slave master. Christian, you are a son of God. Don't go back to your slave master. Now, in verses 1 through 11, to help us see Paul's argument of, Christian, you are a son of God, don't go back to your slave master, there are two points to the sermon this morning. Two points are very simple. They each have three words. Who we were, point number one, and who we are, point number two. Who we were in our life before Christ, in our life before we experienced freedom, and then who we are in Christ today. So, who were we? Well, Paul starts in verse 1 with an illustration, and it's an illustration of comparison. What's the illustration? He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So we have two different people here. We have a slave and we have an heir. An heir is one who is set to receive an inheritance. A slave, not so much. Now, what's the point of comparison? We talked about this in chapter 3. I'll just refresh your memory a little bit. In the Greco-Roman world, very wealthy parents who had lots of possessions and money to pass along to their children would hire a nanny-like individual who became the functional authority in the life of their children. So our English Bibles use the terms guardians and managers. You've either read books about British royalty or you've seen the shows where the kings and the queens would have children and that they would take their children and basically hand them over to a full-time nanny for years and that nanny became their guardian. That nanny became the authority in their life. And so Paul's point here is the heir, that child, is no different than a slave. They have this guardian over them. In verse 3, Paul links the illustration now to our spiritual lives where he says this, in the same way also, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved. All right, notice all the past tense that he's using. This is who we were. Even though we were heirs, even though God knew that a gift was coming, 
We were enslaved, and he says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, that's a phrase that we don't use every day. First, I just want you to see whom we were. We were enslaved. We were slaves. And we were slaves to, now here's this fancy word or phrase, elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? We're going to travel down to verse 8 in just a minute. But right away, when you see that phrase, elementary principles of the world, you know that these elementary principles are based not from heaven. They're based in the nature of the world. And as the Bible uses the term world, most often it is describing or is described in negative terms. So passages like 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Romans 12, verse 1, do not be conformed to this world. I know it's a different Greek term there, but I think the same idea. And so you have this world and this world system that is built with philosophy and built with all kinds of lures and deceptions to lead people astray. And Paul is saying, before whom you were, you were a slave to these elementary principles based where? In, in the world. Now, let's move on down to verses 8 and 9 because he picks up that thought again. And notice the past tense. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. Who were you? You were a slave to those that by nature are not gods. Now, man, what, what are you talking about here, Paul? Verse 8, I think Paul is specifically thinking of or speaking of the Gentiles up in Galatia. So if you read Acts 14, this missionary journey that Paul took up into Galatia, you see that he is ministering to both Jews at the synagogue, and then later down in the chapter, he's ministering to Gentiles and the priests of these pagan religions come out and see Paul do miracles, and they start calling him and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes, ready to put garlands on him, ready to sacrifice animals, saying, we have to worship you guys because you're like gods. Okay. So in verse 8, I think Paul is addressing, hey, Gentiles, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things or those ideas of gods that by nature are not gods. Verse 9 continues the thought of these elementary principles. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Okay, and I'm still asking... What is the elementary principles of the world? Well, if we look in verse 8, it would seem as though the elementary principles of the world would be pagan religions, idolatry. Um, I was in Thailand in, about eight years ago with Jim and Larry Salisbury, and I, I still have this picture in my mind as we went to the Buddhist temple of a poor-looking woman, um, this clean, clean temple with floors that are like marble or tile, and then these golden metal images that are all over this temple, and there's this 
poor-looking Thai woman down on, I, I feel like I remember a blanket or a towel on the ground, maybe to cushion her knees, and just bowing down and praying to this metal image. I think Paul has something very much like that in mind, especially as he was up in Galatia with these priests and pagan religions that were worshiping false gods. Is there power in those kinds of things? Yes, I think there is. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, Satan can work through pagan religions powerfully to keep people blinded. I can't see Christ because this Buddhist idol means everything to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 says this, What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with the, notice the power here, demons. It's like Satan to be behind the deception of idolatry to lure people away or to blind people from being able to see Christ. Okay. That's one aspect that I think the elementary principles can be. Second is, look at verse 10. You look at verse 10, and he says, Now you observe days and months and seasons and years. That doesn't sound like Zeus and Hermes. That doesn't sound like pagan religions here. What that sounds like is Old Testament law. Keep in mind, the people who trusted Christ when Paul came to Galatia were both the Gentiles and who's at the synagogues? The Jews. And what are they observing? They're observing the Old Testament feasts, the Old Testament Sabbaths, the seasons. And so right here in verse 10, Paul seems to be linking elementary principles, those things that are based and rooted in the world, with their adherence to these religious steps that they were taking. Now, for clarity's sake, Paul is saying, do not be enslaved to those things that were part of your former past here. You might think that you need to do good works, or you might think that you need to observe these religious steps from the past to be part of your salvation. Or you might think that you need to blend some of your paganism with Jesus to make sure all of your bases are covered so that you have assurance of your salvation. Paul says this, you're enslaving yourself to these world-based systems, not God. And what Paul is doing here in Galatians, over and over again, and we'll get to this in just a minute, is he is destroying the concept that your past and blending your past or, or working on your past is part of your salvation. So you've seen those big old wrecking balls that are at demolition sites. The crane has got this huge heavy weight attached to a chain and then the crane starts to swing back and forth and that massive weight goes out and then just comes back and destroys that brick building. What Paul is doing here is saying, 
this has got to be destroyed. We're not going back to the religious steps as part of your salvation. We're not going to blend your paganism with part of your salvation. It's going to be Christ and Christ alone. So he says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How might people be enslaved to religion or to good works other than Christ? Let me give you maybe some things to think about. I was talking with a friend recently who was sharing a little bit of his story from the past. And he remembered from his childhood how people would dress up and look the part on Sundays. He said, I I just saw these people in their Sunday best going to church. But as a boy, throughout the week, he was scooting around with his pals and he was overhearing the conversation and the gossips and the sinfulness of those same adults who were dressed up and going to church. I'm wondering why these people would even put on their Sunday best and show up at a church service if they're going to live that way during the week. Part of it may have been peer pressure. Part of it may have been hypocrisy. But part of it might have been those individuals knew that they were sinners. They knew that they were falling into patterns of sin. They looked at their Monday through Saturday lives and said, I do feel like a wretch. So therefore, what do I do? I better show up at church on Sunday in order to get cleaned up. Do you realize how deceptive that is? Where people could even approach the location where faith is being taught, where religion is being taught, and they attach their hope, they attach their faith to the act that I just showed up at church on Sunday, therefore I feel pretty good about myself, I must be good with God. Is that ever anything that you face? You look back at your last week, and you're like, man, failure on Monday. Man, failure and sin on Wednesday. I really blew it on Friday. I better clean up my act and just make sure that I'm saved by going to church on Sunday. You are saved by your faith in Christ alone. There's another way that people are often enslaved. And that is by placing their faith in themselves. And this is a subtle deception that Satan often uses. We place our faith in the amount of faith or in the ability to conjure up enough faith. I don't know if you heard Caleb's testimony last Sunday. If you didn't hear it, it's worth going back online to find it because he was expressing this thought in his own life. There is this enslavement to ourselves where we see Christ out in front of us and we say, I need to have faith that I have enough faith in him. Where is your faith focused then? Your faith is focused in you trying to have enough faith in him. 
If I can just conjure up, if I can just build up enough faith, then I would feel better about myself, and then I must be saved. Proverbs 3.5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The thinnest lines of faith, even like a spider web coming from your heart and attached to Christ, if that's all of the faith that you have and that's all of the faith that you have this morning and you're coming in just saying, I feel like my, my faith is that thin, that's enough for God to say, you're mine. You're my child. Be free from the slavery of placing hope or faith in yourself. Don't be enslaved to your good works. It's in Christ. Don't go backwards in your thinking. Don't believe the lie that the old master of good works or meeting a certain standard makes me secure with Christ. That's enslavement back here. It's a rat race. It's a hamster wheel. Don't follow that master. We have been set free. Okay, so if you do trust in Christ, even if you've got this spider web, thin line of faith attached to Christ, who are you now? Point number two, who we are. In verses four through seven, Paul unpacks this wonderful promise that you are a secured, adopted son of God. If you are believing in Jesus Christ, you are a secure, adopted son of God. Now, Paul writes in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Jesus was a human. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law meaning he would be judged by the Old Testament law, which he kept perfectly for us, to redeem those who were under the law. And that is that we might receive adoption as sons. So Christ's purpose here in coming is multifaceted here. He came as the Son of God, divine deity, born of a woman, as a human, lived under the law that condemns us when we sin, and he did it perfectly. The only one who lived under the law perfectly. All of us living under the law have failed the law, so we stand as condemned. Now, what did he do and what did he accomplish? There are four results of Christ's coming for us. The first purpose that he accomplished, is to redeem those who are under the law. We are redeemed people as Christians. Redemption is the language of purchasing and freeing someone who is enslaved. Slaves are beat-up people. Slaves are helpless. Slaves are desperate. Slaves want freedom. Is that you? I mean, do you feel that at times? wanting a new life, wanting a new beginning. Whatever it is that you have felt or been enslaved to in order to try to have a relationship with God, whatever it is that you think you have to become in order to be accepted by God, Christ came into the world with the gift 
for us so that we don't have to become perfect. He is perfect. I mean, how many people are struggling because they look at their past and they condemn themselves because of the sins that they've committed or the failures in which they wanted to become something greater and they say, I'll never be able to be what God wanted me to be. I'll always have that blot on my past. You're enslaved with that kind of thinking. And I think if we're honest, we're either all there or we've all been there where we've looked at our past and said, man, I live in shame for what happened back there. And you carry that burden around wondering, am I ever going to escape that burden? That's slavery. And here Paul is saying, Christ came to redeem us out from underneath the condemnation of the law. We know we sinned, all right? We feel the sin. We're guilty. I get it. What am I going to do? Nothing. I can't do it. Who can? Christ can. So I'm under the law, and he comes as a purchaser, as a redeemer, and says, here's my life of perfect obedience for those who are under the law. It's yours as a gift. It's yours as a gift. Will you receive it in faith? And for those who respond in faith to Jesus Christ, the shame, the sin, all of the guilt, all of the junk from the past now is no longer yours to carry anymore. You are free now from that. And you might just have to preach that over and over to yourself again because Satan loves to say, no, you're not. You need to make up for that in order to be right with God. You need to do more good works. You need to do right things. That's slavery right there. That's the deception of Satan. That's idolatry. That's elementary principles of the world that you're enslaved to. And so we look towards our Redeemer, whom we were singing about this morning, and we say to our Redeemer, I am now yours. I don't belong to him anymore. I'm set free. So in your mind, even this morning, whatever it is that is part of your past, or maybe even part of your present life that is enslaving you, you can look at Christ for salvation. And you can say, again, God, I believe it is not my works that save me. It's not my ability to cover up my shameful acts of the past. It's not me trying to deal with the shameful acts that were done to me. It's Jesus Christ who has redeemed me. Jesus came to offer redemption to whoever in their hearts as weak and wispy as the voice might be, are saying, yes, I believe in you, Jesus, alone. You are now free. You're free from even yourself. So that's result number one. You've been redeemed into freedom. And now in your freedom, there's another result. He says this, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. John 1, verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children or the sons of God. Like, what's the big deal about becoming a son? It's closeness. It's belonging. My sons will sit down at the table with me and have a meal. 
because whether they realize it or not, I've provided it for them. My son sits at the meal with no threat of me walking out and abandoning him. I don't even know if it's ever crossed either of my son's minds or my daughter's minds. My son has the freedom with me as his father to barge right into my face when I'm reading a good book and say, hey, dad, do you want to go outside and throw the football with me? Or like last night, hey, dad, do you want to help me with my Sudoku puzzle? To which my wife rescued me and said, I'll help you. And that didn't happen, so he came to me, and then I helped him. Something like that. With this motif of children, my daughters are the ones, I think back, I'm their dad. Years ago, they're born, and I take these little bambinos, and I put these six-pound babies into the car seat and put the straps over them. They belong to me. I take them home from the hospital. And then 15 and a half years later... I put them in the driver's seat. Something is wrong when that happens. I'm saying, watch out for that. Put your foot on the brake, teaching them how to drive. Why? Because they're my children. For my sons, I go to their football games, and I cheer for them. I love to see them. And when my son catches a touchdown pass, that's joy for me. I love it. Or the band performances for my children. We go and we cheer them on. It's my children who can say, Dad, my shoulders are sore while we're watching a show. You want to rub my shoulders? It's my kids who walk by and I'll I'll put my arm out for them as they're walking through the kitchen. And I'm inviting them in for a hug. And sometimes they'll come in for a hug. Or as only a child can do, they'll say, Dad, you stink. You smell like garlic. No, no, not right now. There's closeness with that. I think about vacations. It's my kids where we get to go to a campground or to a place out east or maybe we'll go out west. And there we are on a trip together, spending time with one another, sitting around the fire, talking about anything that pops up on their minds, or just sitting there without anything to stay, staring at the flames and not feeling awkward about it. My children can cry in front of me. My children can laugh. They can be goofy and not have to worry about, is he going to accept me or is he going to reject me? To be a son is to be in relationship. And God is a way better father than I am. He unconditionally loves his children, even his children who have sinned, even his children who have shame. And the father knows what is right and best for his children. He's the ultimate father. And so we have this privilege because Christ redeemed us out from under the law and brought us into a relationship with the Father. We've been adopted by him, and he is our Father. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you are a son, a permanent son of God. Third result, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Verse 6 says, and because you are sons, here's what God has done. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into into fear. 
you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So here's how John Stott said it. He said, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have the experience of it. Now, I just, I love that quote when I came across it. Every time you cry out from your heart, even in silence, you just cry out, God, please help me right now. I don't know where I'm going to turn. Or God, I'm hurting right now, and I don't know where to go with this. Or God, that was awesome. Thank you for meeting my needs. That impulse to pray like that and to be secure next to God is because of the gift of the Holy Spirit whom God wants you to have so that you will cry out, Abba, Father, God, you are my Father. Fourth, we have an inheritance. This is the fourth result. And the inheritance that we are receiving from our Heavenly Father is the complete gift of salvation. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is what God has done for us. He's given us a future inheritance of eternal life. He's given us a present aspect of that inheritance in Christ Jesus so that we have a relationship with God. The forgiveness of sins is done. So I want to ask you a question. Who are you this morning? And how have you been living? How have you been thinking? Have you been thinking as a slave or are you a slave still under the bondage and guilt of sin? Have you been thinking as a slave living under your sin or your sin of the past? The good news that Paul is sharing with us is that you don't have to go back to these elementary principles of the world. They're lies. You're a son of God. And if you're a son, then this morning, don't go back to slavery. Whatever you're mulling around in your mind in terms of who you have to be in order to be accepted by God, today, ask the Spirit of God to help you take that over to the mental trash can and just dump it. I don't have to be because Jesus has already done. All the sin in your life, all the effects of sin in your life, Jesus has dealt with it. He purchased you out from underneath the condemnation of the law. He paid the price when he died on the cross for your sins. Christian, you are set free. And those sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. You are now a son of God. So since you're a son of God, enjoy your freedom this week. Enjoy the gifts of your inheritance. And don't return to your master. Let's pray.